1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 1135. As we continue our study chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And you know, one of the fun things about studying chapter by chapter through a Bible is that sometimes you come to chapters that you might not normally have chosen to preach from if you were just picking out a favorite passage. Well, today's one of those interesting passages that come before us in Scripture. Challenging passage. Difficult. And yet, if you put the work into a passage like this, usually you find gold because it's still the Word of God. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Paul writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels... The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. (sighs) Okay. Well, well, what do we do with a passage like 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. It's a challenging passage. Um, uh, One of the ways that Christians have dealt with this passage is simply to do it. There are churches and church traditions that practice this very thing, that in the gathered worship of the church, uh, men don't wear anything on their heads and women do wear something on their heads. Perhaps you've been in a Mennonite church or a Brethren church. Um, I'd just be curious here, just show of hands here, if, if you've either been at some point in your life in a church where that's practiced, or maybe like your mom or your grandmother tells you stories about how everyone used to wear something on their heads. I mean, just, is that anything here people are familiar with? So, okay, this isn't totally like unheard of. Yeah, and, and in some ways, I have to be honest, the simplest, easiest, cleanest way to take this passage, I think, is just to say, Men don't cover your heads, women do cover your heads. In some ways, there's a nice simplicity to that. And yet, and yet, I look around the room, and I don't see many doilies. There's one, okay. I I, I don't see, oh, oh, Nancy Lundquist. 
<laughs> Is that a coffee filter? And you just got that for today. Woo! Okay. And yet there is a complexity to this text and this congregation, is there not? There's a complexity uh, because if you think about most evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, churches of people who want to do what the Word of God says, you you find that in a majority of churches you don't find this practice being done of, of men not covering and women covering at the same time. Um, and, and I think there's, there's reasons for that. Because from one angle, you could say, well, it's simple, just do it. From another angle, it's like, well, is it that simple? Because, uh, you know, there's this cultural distance. Clearly, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to just kind of say, it seems like something was going on at that time that isn't going on today. It's, it seems like there's, there's something different about what these things meant back then. And so that historical difference makes us pause uh, and then there's the, the theological questions, because it's not only about what you wear on your head, but, but there's this theological idea of headship, that, that the actual practice of putting something on your head points to some other thing that Paul wants to say about the relationship. So there's kind of a wordplay going on here, right? Cover your head to honor your head, another person that Paul is saying. So, so there's that theological conundrum that we have to wrestle through. And then, just frankly, there's a lot of interpretive questions here that make this passage challenging to even translate into English. So, for instance, I'll throw some out there. Uh, you, you know, the, the, word, the Greek word for man and the Greek word for woman, is, the Greek word for man is also the Greek word for husband. And the Greek word for woman is also the Greek word for wife. So are we talking about men and women? Are we talking about husbands and wives? Or is it possible we're talking about husbands and wives as pointing toward men and women in some way? Is it both somehow? Or later on in the passage, Paul uh, says in verse 14, doesn't the very nature of things teach you? But that word nature could also be translated custom. So is it the nature, is it the custom, or is it something in nature of which the custom points to? And what is going on with the angels in verse 10? Because of the angels? What? Huh? Where'd they come from? And what are they doing? And why do they care what women wear on their heads or men don't wear on their heads? It's, it's just, you know, it's a really challenging passage for those reasons. It's no wonder then, I think, that uh, some scholars have said that not only is this the hardest passage to interpret in 1 Corinthians, but uh, in, in some ways it's one of the harder passages in all the New Testament to really understand what it's saying and what it means for us. So here's my plan of attack. Uh, I want to first wrestle with the actual practice of head covering. Let's just see if we can understand what it meant and what it meant in that situation. And then I want us to go down deeper into the theology of headship because, again, there seems to be a cultural practice tied to a theological truth. Cover your head so you don't dishonor your head. So we'll talk about the theology that's operating under this to which the cultural practice is connected. And then the third thing I want to do after we've done that is just try to answer the question, okay, so what do we do with this text? You know, to cover or not to cover? That is the question. So how do we actually handle this text in terms of practice in the church since it's describing a practice in the church? 
So let's start, first of all, with the practice itself. Again, look at verse 4 with me. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. So we have here a command about head coverings. And it seems we should say the context of this command is in the corporate worship of the church. It's, it's what men and women do when they're praying or prophesying. So, so presumably it's about men and women coming together, the, the church coming together, gathering, and doing its talking to God and talking to one another. Now maybe some of you are thinking, what does that prophesying mean? You know, please, one theological crisis at a time for me here, okay? But we'll deal with prophecy later on in chapter 14. But, but it seems to be the corporate worship of the church. You know, verse 16, Paul is talking about the practices in the, in the assemblies, in the churches. If you look at chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, in these four chapters, Paul seems to be dealing with issues, dealing with the gathered worship of the church. So the context here seems to be attire, clothing, worn in the gathered assembly of the church. And it seems to be that men are not to wear anything on their heads, but women are to cover their heads. Now, what did they wear? Uh, Probably not coffee filters, but probably something else. Did they wear hats? Did they wear veils? Um, There is, you know, there's some sculptures that archaeologists have found of of, uh, Roman women sort of pulling, I guess you might call it a hoodie, a cloak with a hood, you know, and they pull the hood up over their head like this. Uh, So perhaps that's what it was. Um, we're not 100% sure. But then that raises the question, well, what, what was going on in the, the cultural background here? I'm working on the assumption, as I look at this text, I'm working on the assumption that Paul is not pulling a random commandment out of thin air. I'm working on the assumption that Paul is not just saying, you know, let's just make a rule for the church. Uh, okay, uh, head. Okay, head, uh, you do this and you do... I mean, it seems to me that he, he's giving this commandment because it has a connection and a meaning in the world in which he lived that would have made some sense to the people in the world in which he lived. So, so the question is, well, what did head covering mean back then? Why, why would a woman cover her head? And so you read scholars and you read people who talk about historical backgrounds, and the answer is, well, we're not 100% sure. It could be, here's some of the more probable explanations, which are not mutually exclusive. It could be that what was going on was that head covering was simply men's clothing versus women's clothing, that it was a way of distinguishing what men wore and what women wore. Uh, One of the ancient Roman historians named Plutarch talks about the fact that, you know, men customarily don't wear something on their head and women customarily do. So it could just be a way of, this is what guys wore back then, this is what gals wore back then. And so it's a matter of not blurring or confusing the genders and the sexes and not doing something that would have seemed like cross-dressing back then. Um, or another possible interpretation is, is that the, the head covering is important because it, it was a sign of sexual modesty for women. You know, you think about the, the hair, long hair, and, and there's this idea that you can find some ancient literature that long hair was kind of a part of a woman's sex appeal, Right? And it's not just an ancient idea. I mean, you see it in commercials, right? You know, you see some hair product commercial and the woman's t- using some shampoo that gives her body and shine. And, you know, she's got this long, you know, incredible hair and she's like waving it in front of the camera, 
you know, and she looked so sexy, right? Like, so perhaps this was an act of modesty. It, it, it was a way of not looking alluring, not, not flaunting what would have been considered in that culture part of a, a woman's sex appeal. Um, different cultures associate different parts of our bodies with sex appeal, and in different cultures is different things. Um, Another possible interpretation is that, is that it was a sign that the woman was a kind of dignified, noble wife and mother, that, that she had propriety, that she had nobility, that she was distinguished, that she honored her husband, that she honored her family, and that she was upstanding. It was a sign of dignity in that society. Kind of like, perhaps like in Muslim cultures, where in some Muslim societies, women wear the hijab, you know, over their heads, and it covers their head. And sometimes we Westerners, as Western women, Western people, look at women wearing a hijab in a, Western cult, uh, a Muslim culture, and, and we think, you know, oh, they're so oppressed. And maybe some of them feel oppressed, but some Muslim women don't feel oppressed by that at all. They, they feel like, well, this is, no, I'm not oppressed. This is my dignity. This is my, I am a, a dignified, honorable woman who, who is loyal to my family and loyal to my husband. This is a, a sign of honor for me. So it could be that kind of an idea behind it too. Or as you can see, it could be all three in different ways. So something like that seems to be going on. But whatever it was exactly, whatever the precise connotation was between head covering and cultural mores at that time, the point in this text seems to be that by women not covering their heads in worship, it would have been something scandalous, improper, shocking, upsetting, dishonorable, disgraceful. That everyone would have went like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Look back at the text. Notice that, that, that these are the kinds of words that Paul attaches to not covering your head the right way. You know, he says if a man prays and prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors. So it's, a, it's an issue of honor and dishonor. Or in verse 5, that a woman who prays and prophesies uncovered dishonors her head. It is as though her head were shaved. He says if a woman, verse 6, does not cover her head, well, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. The point seems to be an analogy. Look. Isn't it disgraceful in that culture, or, or isn't it a sign of disgrace if someone were to shave a woman's hair off? Wouldn't, wouldn't that kind of humiliate her? And you go, yeah. Well, don't you see, that, that's what non-head covering is doing. It's doing the same thing. So if you Corinthian women are so insistent on throwing off this common cultural convention, why don't you go the whole way and shave your heads? Oh, you won't do that? Okay, well, then why don't you wear your head covering? So it's, it seems to be he's making an analogy, but again, it's about disgrace and dishonor. Or again, look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper? So we're talking about propriety, public decency in a cultural context for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not the very nature, or you could translate that, the very custom of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. So again, there seems to be an analogy. Paul's trying to make an argument, and he's, he's pointing to the way things are just done in that society. I mean, you look in Greco-Roman culture, in Greco-Roman culture, men had short hair, women had long hair. You know, it's, it's different. 
Uh, you know, in, in our society, sometimes men have long hair, sometimes women have long hair. Sometimes in, in, in our society, women have long hair, women have pixie cuts. I mean, it's everything in between. And, and so, so, so the, the back in that society, it was more common for men to have short hair, women to have long hair. And Paul's saying head coverings are like that. It's, it's as if a man's short hair is analogous to not wearing a covering, and a woman's long hair is analogous to wearing a covering. So come on, guys, just follow the customs of your time. Because if you don't, you're, you're doing something that would have been interpreted as disgrace, dishonor, shocking, scandalous in that situation. I was trying to think of some analogy of what it would be like today in our culture, and, and I could only come up with ridiculous over-the-top things, so I'll just try those on you here. It would be like if one of the pastors of the church or one of the elders came in in high heels and a dress. It would be a scandal. That could be a career ender, as a matter of fact. At least in our church, churches like ours. It it would be shocking. We would say, what? You know, even if this is a joke, even if this is some far-fetched sermon illustration, like, don't do that. It, it, It would just... It would be so disruptive, and it would bring confusion and shame into the congregation. Um, or imagine if a pastor's wife or an elder's wife came into church in a, a really tight black leather dress that was, you know, super high miniskirt and plunging neckline, and she had on six-inch stiletto heels and really outrageous makeup, uh, and, and she took off her wedding ring. And, you know, it, you, you would just be like, what is she doing? You wouldn't be like, oh, that's neat. She's expressing her clothing in her own way. I mean, you would just, it would be, it would be talked about. It, it would be disruptive. People would say, is she some kind of floozy? Like, what? What is that? What's going on? And, and so there would be kind of disgrace and dishonor and confusion brought into the church because, because male and female Markers were being confused, and uh, sexual modesty was being thrown to the wind, and people would be wondering about whether husbands and wives and what their relationship was like, and what, what, how does that husband feel to see his wife dressed like that in church? And it's just, it would be so disruptive and dishonorable. And that's a problem, because the reason we gather here on Sunday mornings is for glory, not shame. There's one reason we're all sitting here in this room together, hopefully. It's because we're here to glorify God. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to glorify and bring honor to each other. And, and as a, a wife honors her husband, and as a husband honors the Lord, and as a wife and husband honor God, you know, Christ is lifted up and the Father is lifted up. And, and so the whole point of the corporate gathering of the church, our number one responsibility here is to glorify God and honor Him with our singing and with our praying and with our giving and with our, our loving each other and with hearing God's Word and obeying God's Word. The whole point of everything we do in worship corporately is to bring glory to God. I mean, didn't we just look at that last Sunday? Look back at chapter 10, verse 31. Remember, we looked at these three big principles. Here is this big principle, chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The church's primary calling, that the number one thing we are to be about as a church, is not... All right, don't walk out when I say this. Let me explain. Our number one calling is not evangelism. 
Our number one calling is not missions. Our number one calling is not disciple-making. Our number one calling is to glorify God. And so we are passionate about evangelism because we want more people to glorify God. And we are passionate about missions because we want people glorifying God from every nation and every tribe and every language. And we're passionate about making disciples of Christ uh, and, and, and telling others about Jesus because as we grow as Christians in our discipleship and our character becomes more and more like the image of Christ, God's glory is shining in His church. But all of those things that, that we are all about 100% missions, evangelism, discipleship in the church are really ultimately means to an end. Because when we get to heaven someday, there's going to be no more evangelism, there's going to be no more sermons. <laughs> we're not going to need growth group study guides just going to worship, and we're going to reflect His character and His glory. We're going to be fully remade into His image, reflecting His glory and His honor. So, why then would, in a church, in that cultural context, would you do something in the church that would introduce shame and dishonor and scandal and disruption into the church. It it would be bringing us down rather than lifting us up. It would be making our corporate gathering about something uh, scandalous rather than something God-glorifying and honoring and and worshiping to the Lord. And it it would be women dishonoring their husbands and husbands being dishonored or dishonoring others. So that really leads us to the second part of the plan of attack here, which is to start thinking then a little bit more about not just the physical head, what you literally wear on your head, but, but this idea of headship, you might call it, that someone else is your head. Go back to verse 3. Paul says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's, as we said before, there's a play on words here. To cover your head or not cover your head because it gives honor or dishonor, respectively, to your head. So it seems that God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of of man or husband, perhaps. Tough to translate. I lean toward husband. And then the husband is the head of what I would probably say is wife. So... So so there seems to be sort of a chain of headship through which glory and honor is supposed to flow upwards, not shame and disgrace. So uh, what does that mean then to have someone as your head? I mean, obviously there's a figurative usage of the word head here. And and the the idea of headship is is a rich, complex New Testament word that you can't simplify with one kind of definition. For for someone to be the head of someone else in, in using kind of biblical categories... It, to be the head is to be in a position of prominence, responsibility, authority, where you have responsibility for another and where you represent someone else. So it has the ideas of representation, of prominence, of leadership, all there. So, so the head represents those uh, that, that he leads, and he has responsibility for those. That's, that's what heads do. In, in some ways, we really use the word in the same way in English today. There really is, and this is one of those ones where there is things not as much lost in translation. You know, we talk about someone who's a head coach of a team. We talk about somebody who's a headmaster of a school. 
Uh, we, we say, oh yeah, that person's heading up that new department. Um, you know, sometimes people call me the head pastor of this church. And, you know, yeah, we have, I'm not the only pastor here. We have three pastors and we have, we have 12 elders. And I believe biblically the elders are pastors and the pastors are elders. So I would say we have like 15 pastors in our church. And, and yet I'm sort of called to this role of kind of being the, I guess you might say the first among equals or some kind of leadership role where, where you know, I, I, I'm to lead this church in, in sort of a unique way. And, and, you know, I represent you. And so what I do reflects on you. It's true. And, you know, what you do reflects on me, and, and that's part of this responsibility of headship. So if you're the head, your job as the head, if, if you're a head in some situation, is to lead, it's to care for, it's to honor, and it's to, um, to build up and represent well those for whom you're the head. And if someone else is your head in a certain situation, well, your job is to respect them and to support them and where appropriate, based upon the appropriate level of authority, to, to follow them and, and to submit. And so it's, it's part of that, that role of headship that we have in all kinds of human relationships. And so Paul is, seems to be saying here that, I would argue, it, at least in a husband-wife relationship, God is called husbands to be the head of the relationship, to be that, that nurturing, encouraging, leading, building up, responsible representative. Um, and, and this seems to be built into creation itself. You know, go down to verse 7. He says, a man ought not to cover his head, literal head, since he is the glory, image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What is he talking about? Well, he's taking us back to the book of Genesis, where God first made Adam, and then he said, wow, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. And so he took and made Eve out of Adam, and he made Eve for Adam. So it seems to be that in the husband-wife relationship, there's this kind of replaying, this role-playing in a husband-wife relationship of Adam's relationship to Eve. And so those patterns that were set in creation are sort of repeating themselves. And so a husband has that responsibility. You see the same idea in First Corinthians, or rather uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I won't take the time to go there, but, you know, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so a wife has a responsibility to honor her husband. A husband has a responsibility to self-sacrificially love and lead his wife in those situations in marriage. Well, how does that sit with you? <laughs> I suspect some of us here struggle with this idea. I suspect for some of us, actually wearing on, something on your head would, is a lot easier issue, actually. Like, oh, well, you know, whatever, something on my head. I mean, as long as I look cute, I mean, whatever. But, um, but this deeper issue that, that in, perhaps in marriage there are different roles and responsibilities. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult for us for a number of reasons. Um, uh, it sounds sexist. It sounds chauvinistic. It sounds like men are better and men need to lead things and women just need to kind of follow and... Um, you know, women need a man, otherwise they're kind of lost. It, it sounds oppressive to women. It sounds like the kind of thing that, that people say in order to justify abuse and oppression. It sounds like the kind of thing that people use to, to kind of baptize abuse. 
right? Well, hey, listen, you know what the Bible says, so just do what I say. And wow. I had a woman uh, come up to me once in church many years ago, and uh, she was new, young woman. She'd only been to church, like, I think twice or something, and she came up and and I was like, hi, you're new, right? And she's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, so, so is this a church where you guys don't have women pastors? And is this a church where the husband's supposed to be like the head of the house, that kind of thing? And I was like, um, I said, yeah, well, you know, we, we believe those things based upon the Bible, and I'd be happy to talk about that kind of a thing. And, and she said, you know, it really doesn't matter what verses in the Bible you could point me toward to to argue that. She says, I just could never be in a church to believe that. And I never saw her again. And I just wondered. I, you know, that, that was a conversation that's always haunted me. I'm like, I wonder where she was coming from. I just, who knows? What, what kind of experiences she's had in her life? I wonder what things she's gone through. I wonder what's led her to that firm of a conviction. Because we all come to these issues from our lives. And we come to these issues from our life experiences. None of us just come into this like, well, I've never thought about this before. What does it say? I mean, we're, we've all been shaped by our lives. And so it's a hard, it's a hard one in some ways to understand. So, so, so let me throw out some thoughts from this text that may be helpful as we try to get our heads around this idea of headship in marriage and in, and in the church, for that matter. Um, the first thought is, and, and let me be really clear about this, the Bible teaches that men and women are equal. Let me say that again. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal. And for those who missed the first two times I said it, let me say it a third time. (laughs) The Bible teaches that men and women are equal. Men and women are both fully made in the image of God. It says in the beginning God created man in His image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Women are fully valuable in God's sight as much as men. Men and women are both of equal dignity and equal value and equally treasured by the Lord. In salvation, in Christ, they have equal standing in Christ. Men and women are equally the image bearers of God. Um, we need to always remember that and stress that. I, the Bible just it doesn't give the idea in the Bible that... that you know, men are smarter or better or, you know, more equipped and women are kind of helpless. I mean, you just don't see that kind of thing really in Scripture. You, you see an equality between what God has made in man and woman. And yet, there is a call to roles and responsibilities. So, so here's an idea for you. To say that two people have different roles in a relationship does not say that they are unequal people. And I think sometimes we hear that and we're like, no, no, those are contradictory. They're really not. You know, someone has to lead. You know, in my marriage, I'm, uh, you know, I, I believe this. I try to live this. I try to be the head of my household. My wife honors and supports that. She believes it too. But, but does that mean I have all the answers or I am, am the best equipped to handle every situation or, or that I'm not dependent upon her for a ton of things or, or that she can't come to me and be like, listen, you're being a numbskull, <laughs> you know, you know, I know you're trying to do the right thing there, but that was dumb. You shouldn't do that. I mean, you know, we have those kinds of conversations. And if any of you have been in leadership, you know that's how good leadership works, right? I mean, good, to be a leader doesn't mean that you're the best one at everything, but it means you've been called to a responsibility. And, and good leaders are people who, who listen to 
others because they understand that at one level we're equal and we need to learn from each other and lean on each other, be interdependent. You see that in this text. Look at verse 11. After all that stuff about headship, Paul then, I'm not going to say backpedals, but he, he balances it with the other side of the story. Verse 11, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for woman came from man. Just as woman came from man, Adam and Eve, so also man is born of woman, every other guy. And everything comes from God. So, so what, whatever headship is, it's not an absolute thing where we're saying that one sex is superior to another, but rather within this equality of humanity, there's a, a responsibility. So you have to hold this tension. There's a responsibility that men have to lead in those situations. And, and that's why I, I would also say that headship is not synonymous with abuse. You know? It, it just, that's, that's illogical to say that one necessarily leads to the other. I mean, if someone's the head coach, does that mean that he can punch out the assistant coaches? Since I'm the head pastor, can I punch deacons? I mean, you know, I know they've wanted to punch me, but uh, just kidding. I mean, you know, being abusive isn't synonymous with authority. Authority is a good thing. When it's used humbly, servingly, to build up and edify and care for the ones for whom you have some measure, whatever that measure is, of authority. Abuse is not the same thing as authority. In fact, without authority, everything, you know, no authority is, is horrible. It's anarchy. And, and society falls apart. We, we were never made to not have authority. We've been worshiping the authority of God in this whole worship service. So obviously we don't think authority is inherently evil. The problem is the abuse of authority, the the misuse of authority, the misuse of positions of influence. That's the problem. But when it's used the right way, authority is life-giving. Have you ever had someone who's been a kind of head or an authority in your life, and they were awesome and they loved you and they took care of you? You'd do anything for that person. I'd go to the mat for that person. It's like, I love that one. That one loved me and I knew it. And this is nowhere better demonstrated than within God's self. Look back at verse 3. He says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Okay. The head of every woman is man. Okay. But here's the real shocker. Are you ready? The head of Christ is God. What? And this is really amazing because Paul is emphatic and the whole New Testament is emphatic, and Jesus himself was very clear that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God made visible. He's God with us. He's the image of the invisible God. He is fully God. That, that, that's God became a human being so that when Jesus was among us, the Creator was among us. And we worship Him and we honor and adore Him because He is God. Um, As Christians, we believe in one God. We do not believe in three gods. Just one God. And yet that one God is a community. And this totally explodes my mind. I can't explain it. Except that God loves God. And so God is the one who loves and is the one who is loved. And the love between them is so strong that it's divine, that it's a spirit of love. And so within God's self, there is this community of love. And so for Paul, God, 
both the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all equal. There's a, a profound equality among them. And yet, even in the equality of God, there are these different roles that the different members of the Trinity play, where the Son submits to the Father, that, that Christ is the head of God. I mean, when you think of that language of Father and Son, it's a language of headship. Uh, and when Jesus was on this earth, He always talked that way. When the Son became a human being named Jesus, He would always say, I always do the will of my Father. I'm just doing what my Father does. I'm only saying what my Father says. To this day, my Father's working. I too am working. He was always obeying His Father. And even think about the night before Jesus was crucified. Remember this? Remember where He was? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He was wrestling with the fact that He was about to go to the cross. And He said, Oh, Father, if there's any way that You can take this cup, the cup of suffering from Me, Take it away. You know, no one would want to go to the cross to die for sinners. But then what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. So that at the heart of the story of salvation, you have an act of profound submission to headship. At the very core of the gospel, is Jesus Christ, the one who had authority to lay down His life and take it up again, submitting Himself to the Father and the Father's will. It's right there in the Gospel. And so, so we are here as Christians today. We, we, we celebrate the fact that our sins have been forgiven, that we have a relationship with God through Jesus. Because we're a bunch of people who are, our whole lives have said, not your will be done, but my will be done. But Jesus came, and He's the one guy who had the right to say, my will be done. And He's the one guy who said, your will be done. So at the center of the Gospel, at the center of Jesus dying for our sins to save us, is an act of submission to the headship of the Father Himself. It's amazing. And so that's why this matters. This is not just about how to make your marriage better or something like that. But these categories that, that are baked into marriage have been hardwired into creation so that we have mental categories for understanding the Trinity and understanding what Christ has done for the church. So that when, when Paul can say, look, a husband's had the wife like Christ has had the church, so husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, then you're going, oh my goodness, that's a high love. That's beyond my reach. To love my wife as Christ loved the church Wow, I need to work on my selfishness first because I'm really selfish. How do I do that? But these categories are built into creation for the sake of the gospel so that we might know who God is. So then, in light of all this, I need to wind this up. What should we do? What do we do with this passage then? Should we wear head coverings in the church or not? If not, why? If so, okay. What, what do we do? And so let me uh, end this message by giving you two answers. <laughs> Answer number one. If, based upon your study of this passage and your wrestling through Scripture, you are convinced, convicted that, that, that men should not only not wear something on their heads in worship, but women should wear a head covering... And, and that's, as you come out and you're like, you know, I just, as I wrestle with it, as I thought about it, I can't get past that, then please, by all means, do it 
at South Shore Baptist Church, you are welcome. We will not look at you funny. We will not tease you <laughs> unless you're being silly, you know, with a coffee filter. But otherwise, <laughs> but, but if, if it's really coming from your, your, your convictions, we'll, we'll honor that. We, and you should feel free. If some of you are here, I don't know all your religious backgrounds, but if some of you are coming from Mennonite or Brethren churches or other churches where that's practiced, and you've always felt like, I really, f- I like this church, I'd like to be here, but I feel like I should wear head covering, but no one else does, and I feel weird, stop feeling weird, just do it. Okay? You need to just follow your conscience with that. The other thing that I would say then, my second answer to you is that I am not convinced that men and women today in our culture, in the church, need to literally wear head coverings, as it says. Why? That's the big question. Because it seems to me that Paul is clearly kind of identifying a cultural practice that pointed to a a, a transcultural, timeless truth. In other words, what you're doing with your head is pointing to headship and that those two were a clear connection in that culture and society so that the two were were connected and he had to deal with them that way. That seems to me what's going on here. You know, if you don't cover your head, you're dishonoring your head. He seems to be having these two ideas and concepts. The problem is that at least in Western culture, at least in America, we live in a society where women putting something on their head doesn't have that meaning at all. If you're at the grocery store and you see a woman in a red socks cap, you know, the pink ones, maybe like camo, pink camo, whatever. Do you see that woman and do you think, wow, she's really feminine because she has a hat on her head? Do you see that woman and think, boy, she's really sexually modest. I appreciate her modesty. Do you see that woman and say, wow, she's really honoring her husband? Well, you know, maybe she's putting up with his Red Sox obsession. I don't know, but you don't think those things. If if you see a woman wearing a Red Sox hat in the grocery store, you're probably going to think, I bet she didn't shower today. I bet she's greasy. <laughs> I know that trick. <laughs> I mean, we just have, we have no connection. If I was living in a, if you were to travel to and, and live and work in Saudi Arabia, if you were to live in a, a culture where head covering had some really significant things, I would really think about that if I was a woman, like dressing in a way that fits with my culture that sends the right messages. You know, you think about being culturally sensitive in those kinds of things. Uh, it seems to me that head covering is kind of like, if I could use some other analogies of commands in the Bible, um, the command to greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't see a lot of smooching in this church on Sunday mornings. You don't seem to be kissing each other a lot, you know? And, and, I mean, this is New England. We don't even hardly make eye contact. I mean, let alone <laughs> kiss. But what's the deeper truth? The deep, wh- why does Paul say over and over, greet one another with a holy kiss? It's because we're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we've been brought into a new family. And brothers and sisters love each other. They care for each other. And brothers and sisters are affectionate to each other, even physical affection. And so I would, I, I would encourage you, to, I think this would be culturally appropriate here, to greet each other on Sunday morning with a holy hug. You know, you're, you're, if you really are brothers and sisters in Christ, you shouldn't be afraid in holy, non-sexual, non-flirty ways 
right, to touch each other. If you're family, you shouldn't be afraid to hug each other. I, I wish we were a more huggy church. It seems to me are kind of like, mm, how are you? Mm. It's just like, are we, are we the family of God? What are we? Like, we're the family of God. Be warm, be affectionate to each other in culturally appropriate ways. Non, non-sinful, non-flirty, holy, but there it is. And yet we don't do the kissing thing because we kind of understand, okay, that's a cultural thing, and yet the principle abides. Or what about foot washing? One more example. Jesus said, I, your master, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. And yet we don't do a lot of foot washing here. And I think even if you haven't thought it through, you kind of get it. You're like, oh, but that, that's because, you know, back then they had open-toe sandals and they walked in dirty roads and there was sheep manure and donkey manure. And, and so when you went into a house, a common gesture of courtesy in the house was to give water for people to wash their feet off because their feet were nasty. We don't have that problem today. If I were to come to you, I mean, we, we have concrete and asphalt and carpets and, you know, good shoes. And if I were to come to you and say, can I wash your feet? You'd be like, what? You know? <laughs> no. You can't touch my feet. It just wouldn't have that meaning. But what's the deeper truth? We should be willing to profoundly serve each other in the church and do the lowliest, crummiest things that actually really do need to be done to help each other and serve each other. That's a challenge, right? So can churches practice foot washing like in a ceremony? Can Christians kiss each other in the church? You know, yeah, whatever. Okay. Might be like, woo, but whatever. It's fine. Um, can women wear head coverings in church? Absolutely. But, but it seems to me that the, the deeper issue is this timeless transcultural thing that Paul is rooting in creation, which is actually the, na- the calling upon men and women to play out a living dramatization before our eyes. So if that is the case then, and I I would say I'm about 75 to 80% convinced of my own interpretation, just to be honest. It's a challenging passage. There's 20% of me that's like, well, hmm, that's what it says. But so I'm about 75, 80% sort of leaning in that direction. Tough passage. But if that's the case then, what do we do with this text? So, so, okay, so all right, Let, let's say you're a person who's like, eh, I don't think I have to wear a head covering today. Then, then what does this text mean for us? Can I make three just quick, I know that we're running long on time here, but hard passage, long sermon. Um, <laughs> three quick applications. Application number one, uh, even if you don't wear head coverings, ladies and guys, you don't mind wearing a hat. Three applications. Number one, uh, let us embrace... Uh, gender differences in our cultures that are non-sinful. Let's embrace appropriate gender distinctions in our culture that, of course, aren't sinful. I mean, some things that mark men and women in their clothing or whatever are like, woo, you don't want to do that. But some things, let's let's embrace it. You know, uh, let's, let's guys dress as guys, gals dress as gals. I mean, practical things like that. Even though we have a kind of unisex clothing in our culture more, yet even in our culture, you know, there's a women's catalog, there's a men's catalog, and, you know, women's clothes are cut this way, men's clothes are cut that way. So don't be afraid of of that. You know, we we need to affirm that God has made men and women differently and and not blur the genders. Um, uh, uh, You know, uh, guys, teenage guys, any teenage guys here, young men, it's okay to be masculine. God made you a guy. So be masculine. You're like, well, what's masculinity? Well, you know, that's a whole long conversation. 
that's a combination of things that are true for all men and also things that are culturally expressed. But you're a guy. And, and girls, teenage girls here, it's okay to be feminine. It's okay. God made you that way. It's beautiful. Embrace it. You know, in culturally appropriate, non-sinful ways. So we can wrestle with what that looks like and what that means. And that takes wisdom and, and uh, lots of conversation. But there's the principle. And, and conversely, let us resist the blurring of genders that is happening in our culture in a wicked way. There's such a blurring of genders taking place. You, you know, this idea that I can be one physical sex, male or female, but my gender can be something completely different in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. We need to resist that. Um, but that's just a confusion of what God has created us to be. God created us male and female. And so we need to resist all those kinds of confusing things. I want to say, uh, if you're here this morning or, or you know someone who wants to be a Christian, is a Christian, wants to follow Jesus, really does want to live by God's Word, but has desires, sexual attractions to the same sex, if someone has homosexual attractions, and, and yet you want to follow Jesus, but you have these desires... I just want you to know that you're welcome here in our church to join us in resisting confusing desires. Because we all have confusing desires that aren't what God planned. For some of us, our confusing desire is that we want to follow Jesus, but we're sexually attracted to the same sex. And, and that's a confusion of what God made men and women to be. It shouldn't be that way. And so, but, but maybe you still have that desire even though you're following Jesus. And you've got to resist it. Well, guess what? Others of us here have confusing desires. Like, we have a confusing desire that even though I'm a Christian, I want to punch people out. And some, right? Some of us here have confusing desires that, uh, to abuse substances. Some of us here have confusing desires to gossip. Some of us here have confusing desires to, to amass things and to covet and to be greedy. And so we need to be a church that's all trying to follow Jesus and is helping each other resist desires that are against the way God would have us live. Even if that fight lasts your whole life, we're here for the long haul for each other. A second application, just moving quickly. So one is don't, let, let's, let's embrace gender differences. Number two, let's, let us honor and support and cheer for marriage. Okay? Let's support marriage. Let's encourage marriage. Let's resist things that are undercutting marriage whether that's no-fault divorce or promiscuity or pornography or same-sex marriage or whatever. Let's, let's resist things that are undercutting marriage between men and women. And, and let's honor marriages in our church. And let's do things to encourage marriages and pray for marriages. Even if you're single, this matters for you. Because marriage is for all of us, even whether or not you're married. It's something that we all look at and we see the categories that point us to the Trinity and point us to the work of Christ on the cross built in to marriage. And so we need to honor marriage and nurture marriage. We need to do things like this uh, next Friday when they're doing the vow renewal thing. Uh, you can learn more about that downstairs at the, the table. But, you know, we need to do stuff like that in the church and just cheer for it. And even if you're single, even if you go your whole life single, man, you should be like, as a Christian, pro-marriage. Because it's about something bigger than us personally. It's about what God has designed. And, and men in marriage lead and women, 
love and honor your husbands as they make faltering attempts at leadership. <laughs> you know, because they're not going to do it perfectly. Encourage them. Even if you really could do it better than they can, which you probably could. Even if you've been a Christian 30 years and they've been a Christian one year, like, encourage them to lead spiritually. Even if you know the Bible backwards and forwards and they don't even know where stuff is, it doesn't matter. Just tell them to lead your family to church, wherever they're at. And guys, lean into that. Let's avoid both the errors of male chauvinism, abuse, domination, which is evil. But let's also avoid the errors of egalitarianism and and the utter obliteration of of distinctions between men and women in marriage. They're both equally destructive in their own ways. And then that, of course, leads us to the third one, which is the church. Let's be a church where both the equality of men and women and the full participation of men and women, both men and women praying and prophesying, right? Both. And yet let's also call upon men to lead in the church. You know, what's the biggest stereo- one of the big stereotypes of the church? Is the church is full of women and where's the men? Right? So, guys, that's a problem. Let's lead. Let's be the ones who are setting the, the, the pace and beating the drum as the whole body, men and women, come together to share their gifts in the church, even as we also acknowledge that guys have a special role to lead in that, especially as pastors and elders. And whatever we do, let's do it for the right reasons. Let's not do anything I said because we're trying to win the culture war. I'm actually kind of pessimistic. I think that war is over. I think we're on our heels. It's okay. We're living for the kingdom of God. That's just my view. You can disagree. We, we're, um, we need to do this for the right reasons, not for the culture war. We need to do this not because... Um, uh, we're trying to support male power or anything like that. The reason we're doing this is for the glory of God, so that God can be glorified, so the gospel can be clear. And so for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the gospel, honor your head. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we just come to you as is. And Lord, we have all kinds of questions, doubts, even as as one who stands before you in this congregation to preach your word, I I still don't fully grasp things. So, Lord, we just come to you, Jesus, and like Peter, we say, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And even when we don't understand everything fully, we know, Jesus, that you're the one who saved us, you're the one who died for us, that you are the Son of God and the Savior of the world. You're the Savior of men and women. You're the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. You're the Savior of free and slave, Lord. You're the Savior of all who will call upon you. And so, God, I pray that we would call upon you. Whether we know you and we just need to grow, help us to call upon you. Whether we're stuck in sin, help us to call upon you. Wherever we're at, Lord, whatever we're battling against, help us to call upon the name of the Lord. And, God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would find out that Jesus is more than a teacher, more than a role model, more than a revolutionary, more than a prophet, that He is the Son of God and Savior of all who call upon Him. Thank You, Jesus. We love You, Jesus. We worship You, Jesus. We're here to honor You because You're our head. You're the head of the church. We love You. We pray all this in the name of 
Jesus Christ. Amen.